Hi, Merry Christmas, and my name is Saul. Welcome to Chapter 74 of The Story of London. The Story of London is a podcast dedicated to trying to tell the story of the city as it passes through time. Each chapter, we try to tell a little bit more of the story of the city, all the time moving the narrative forward. It's a guide to what people felt at the time and is currently building itself up to be a rather epic portrayal of this amazing place and the people within it. We've reached the year 1184 and we need to cover a few years that's kind of important for the story of London and also for the story of England. There is an event coming up very soon that is profound and changes the nature of the city forever. And it's so important that we're going to give it its own chapter. But for now, we need to cover the end of the story of King Henry II, the most powerful king to have ever held the English throne, and the man who was to set up the events that were to follow. The story of London uh, runs without adverts. This was a decision I made a long time ago, and I'd like to try and keep it. As such, it depends on kind and generous contributions from listeners who listen to the show and actually find it entertaining. I'm genuinely humbled and amazed that people do. This is a passion of mine, and I never thought anybody would ever share the passion. It's a joy that people actually have, and for all the lovely reviews that people have sent and the contributions that have kept us going, which you can do at the Buy Me A Coffee website, I am eternally grateful. Right, enough of that. Welcome then to chapter 74 of The Story of London. The Devil's Crown. So the thing about London in 1184 was that it was about to get some big visitors, important ones. The first was Philip, the Archbishop of Cologne, and his arrival to meet King Henry was big news. And it was a huge thing for London as it confirmed the importance of the Stahlhof, the Steelyard. Now, to remind listeners who maybe haven't heard previous episodes before, down by the river on Dowgate... During the reigns of the Danish kings of England, so going all the way back to the stuff I covered in chapter 35, a trade hall had been erected to accommodate the goods and properties of the many Danish traders who were coming to London. Over the intervening years to these Danish merchants had been added traders who came here from that most important of trade ports for the city, Cologne. Now, London and Cologne went way back. For English traders and merchants, especially London-based ones, Cologne was the crucial trading partner to have in Europe. All the way back in chapter 52, at the end of book two of the story, I spent an entire, rather long chapter, summarising how dominant London had been as a trade hub before the Danish and their Norman invasions of England, and how its most valued commodity of English slaves had been sailed across to places like Cologne, then down the Rhine to the Alps, and then over the Alps into today's Italy, and there they were traded for spices and bullion, and that this had made London, and by extension, the whole of England rich. 
The links to Cologne had gone back, therefore, a long time. And even though, again, as I described in chapter 52, the English had lost their economic power, the nation had been bankrupted and London reduced commercially to a city of middlemen, that link to the great port on the Rhine remained and remained crucial. As such, the Germanic merchants of Cologne became increasingly dominant in London. London became the principal market for the selling of German wines. Using this valued commodity, they began to monopolise the distribution of tin from England, which was shipped to London and then sold to these Germans to be spread elsewhere in Europe. London's fine armourers, whose work was noted centuries ago in distant Pavia as being of high quality, now found it was German merchants who sold their quality products elsewhere. And so, as I described in previous chapters, the merchants of Cologne began to become increasingly dominant in London. They controlled the traffic of goods from London to the Rhine and then down to Italy, but also to be part of the east-west trade routes that ran from Frankfurt to Leipzig. And because of that, these merchants, who had started leasing and using parts of the Danish mercantile trade hall down on Dowgate, had gained enough wealth to buy it from them, and it became known as basically the House of Cologne before it became known as the Stelhof or the Steelyard. Thus, up to date now, in 1184, after the wild and somewhat tumultuous years of Henry's Great Revolt, which I went over last chapter, Henry II granted increased liberties to these German-based merchants. And it is a measure of the gravitas of the links that the Archbishop of Cologne, Philip, turned up to visit the king and London that year. Now, he wasn't just an archbishop. Philip was also one of the most powerful men in the Holy Roman Empire of the time. No, seriously, this man's power was immense. He had, a few years previously, upon the dissolution of the old Duchy of Saxony, created the position of the Duke of Westphalia, and the joint archbishop and ducal title would carry on to his successor. He was actually a power significant enough to cause the wily old Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, to be nervous. Philip, the Archbishop of Cologne and Duke of Westphalia, was the power of northwest central Europe, and he was coming to see Henry II, who was the most powerful king of Western Europe. And it must be remembered, Henry was very desperate to make allies at this time. Nobody really liked him after the death of Thomas Becket. And the arrival of the Archbishop just really cements the relationship between London and the city of Cologne going forward. Just need to keep that in mind. That relationship isn't going to go away for a very long time. But that great big German sausage was not the only powerful European magnate coming to visit London in 1184. Oh no. Also coming was another Philip, Philip the Count of Flanders. And he had a somewhat more problematic relationship with Henry II. Firstly, as we know, Philip I of Flanders was somewhat of a power broker himself in the region. His grandfather had been none other than Count Folk of Anjon, a.k.a. Folk of Jerusalem, whose role in English politics I described way back in chapter 59. Philip of Flanders, the Count of Flanders, was technically the cousin of King Baldwin IV of Jerusalem, the leper king, and that this stage in his life, Philip had already taken the cross and sailed to Jerusalem to aid his cousin, so he's a 
great big crusading Count of Flanders. And at home, he'd also been a peacemaker. He'd interceded during the arguments between Henry II and Thomas Becket, and also between Henry II and King Louis of France. He was a powerful lord whose actions had consequences, and as we discussed last chapter, there'd been a few thousand Flemish mercenaries who'd invaded England during the Great Revolt, and at one point there seemed to be a prospect of an actual invasion led by this Flemish count on the way. And also keep in mind that Flemish merchants dominated the English wool trade. And you get the idea that the Count of Flanders' visit wouldn't have been a minor thing. Neither of these visits were minor. 1184 was a year where the world was coming to London, and London made a big thing about the visits, and it also made them realise... Well, streets of London were in a bit of a state... I mean, the detritus of life, offcuts and offal from the butchers, animal waste products, human waste products, general rubbish. London was a mess, a fetid, heaving mass of humanity crammed into a few wooden streets. This would not do if we're going to have foreign dignitaries turning up. Something would need to be done. According to one source I read, it was in response to these visits that the city fathers, the patriarchs and oligarchs who ran the whole place, ordered a general clean-up of the streets and for buildings to be painted and decorated. I mean, London should look the part, don't you think? I like this story because I think here in 1184 or so, you see the first civic ordinance about cleaning the place up. Where it had been things for rebuilding it after a fire before, this is the first time we see somebody going, it's a bit, it's a bit crap here, don't we think it should be nicer? Not saying that we're going to need a lot more legislation like that over the years to come, but yeah, we are. And the high-profile visitors to London didn't stop there. If in 1184 London saw the two Phillips, the year after the city was visited by the highest-profile cleric after the Pope who could have visited it. Heraclius, the Patriarch of Jerusalem. Oh yeah, the Crusader states of Altrimar were once again making an impact upon London, and this time in a big way. Heraclius arrived in London and wowed everyone. Now, he was not just coming to England specifically. The Patriarch of Jerusalem was travelling around the whole of Western Europe. He was desperately trying to shore up support for the leper king of Jerusalem, as the forces of the brilliant emir of Egypt and Syria, Salah ad-Din Yusuf ibn Ayyub, known as the West as Saladin, had encircled and threatened Jerusalem as a nation. And as part of his European tour, the Patriarch came to England seeking aid. By all accounts, his arrival made a big impression upon the city. Heraclius, while a Roman Catholic, dressed in the style of the Byzantines, and his Greek appearance and the nature of the monks who followed him, turned heads and surprised many with their exotic appearance. Now, supposedly, and here we must take on board that contemporary accounts are often filled with hyperbole, the Patriarch of Jerusalem came to London to offer Henry II the throne of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. I'll, I'll get into it in a bit, but the accounts say that the Patriarch came leading an important embassy himself and Grand Master of the Knights Templar and the Master of the Knights Hospitaller, and they say they met Henry II in Reading Abbey on January 1185. 
And it was here that Heraclius supposedly offered Henry the throne of the kingdom of Jerusalem, presenting Henry with the keys to the city of Jerusalem and the keys to the Holy Sepulchre and the banner of the kingdom of Jerusalem. And he endeavoured to persuade Henry with an emotional appeal, a powerful one, could he take the throne of Jerusalem? Contemporary sources suggested that Henry was incredibly moved by the patriarch's emotive plea, but Henry being Henry, he claimed he wished to consult his council before reaching a decision. Henry commanded all his leading prelates, lords and barons, especially the powers that be in England, to meet with him at the Priory of the Knights of St. John of Jerusalem in Clerkenwell, in London, on the 10th of March, to discuss the proposal. Of course, we have to take on board the fact that our accounts of what happened were written by people with axes to grind. Heraclius of Jerusalem, for example, is often described as the single most corrupt patriarch of Jerusalem who ever existed, but this was by people who, well, basically they detested him. And the event of King Henry's encounters with this man were written up by the likes of Gerald of Wales, who is a not very reliable as a chronicler of past events. In truth, what was actually happening back in the Holy Land was that King Baldwin IV of Jerusalem was dying. He had leprosy. He'd been a great ruler. He'd defeated Saladin in several big battles, but he was passing. His kingdom was divided by various factions, and it was constantly under threat by the surrounding and encroaching now organised Muslim forces. Baldwin IV had drawn up in his will what he considered to be the rules of his succession. If his sickly nephew, due to become the child king Baldwin V, were to die before the age of 10, he felt a new ruler should be chosen through the arbitration of four potentates back in Europe. The Pope, the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, the King of France, and Henry II of England. So, that's why late in 1184, a deputation headed west from the king to Jerusalem, led by Heraclius, but it did, as we said, have the Grand Master of the Knights Templar and the Grand Prior of the Knights Hospitalers. And they'd already visited the Pope, Frederick Barbarossa, and the new King Philip Augustus of France, and now, finally, they'd come to Henry. Now, the whole tale that the crown was offered to Henry well, supposedly they'd offered it to the King of France before anyway, like a game of political hot potatoes. Whatever was the case, that while the grand decision was to be held off until that march, we know that Heraclius then travelled to London, and there he consecrated the new church of the Knights Templar. I think it's worth describing the region he was visiting, just so listeners can visualise this amazing district. You, you start with Fleetstreet a.k.a. Fleet Street, running from Westminster to London. You come along from Westminster and you'd pass buildings and eventually arrive at the Temple Bar across the road, which was effectively a gate. This marked where London as a city began, jurisdictionally speaking. And you would see ahead of you the road leading straight to a bridge over the River Fleet and beyond it, the giant and old walls and gates of London itself. As you came to the Temple Bar, to your left was Fittersfield, the ground given to the Templars to joust upon. But if you walked down Fleet Street on your left, you'd find a long and straight road the Templars had just built to move here from Holborn, where their old temple was located. This place, near Street or New Street, is today known as Chancery Lane. Opposite Chancery Lane, to the right, would be Temple Gate, 
the way into the new walled compounds and precincts of the Knights of the Temple of Solomon. The gate itself was said to be reinforced, have five chambers and had its own kitchen and stables. From this you had a road that took you straight down to the riverside. This road passed through what was to be called the outer court, unconsecrated land, and it contained a granary, a brewery, a storehouse, and a hall built for all the servants of the order to reside in. There was also extensive orchards, we think, that led up to the riverside. But halfway down that road, if you turned left, you would pass the formal residence of the Grand Master of the Temple in London and enter the Inner Court. This was the territory Heraclius consecrated, the entire Inner Court, surrounded as it was by a cloister. This region included a guard tower, the kitchens and butteries, the halls for the knights and sergeants, there was a hall for the priests, and there were three separate holy places within it. The Chapel of St. Anne, a separate chapel to St. Thomas Becket, and above all, the Church of St. Mary the Virgin, today's Temple Church. Now, compared to today's version of the church, which has had a lot of history happen to it, the original version of the Templar Church was slightly different and smaller. The area around the altar, known as a chancel, was smaller than today's version due to changes in the building that took place around 1240. The church overall would have been seen as a large, round nave with a small chancel. It had a simplicity about it, influenced by the austerity of style favoured by the Cistercian founder and overall rock star of Christianity of the time, Bernard of Clairvaux. But this is not to say that it was all white walls and paintless, please. That kind of design was born much later. To quote the church's own account of the decoration at the time, quote, There were lozenges of bright paint on the walls, colour on the carved heads, metallic plating on the ceiling to reflect the candlelight, and banners hanging down the columns, unquote. It was a breathtaking place to see and visit. And that wily old patriarch of Jerusalem consecrated it, we assume, in or around Candlemas, of the year 1185, and then he went on to consecrate the Hospitallers Church up in Clerkenwell as he awaited the king's decision. For his part, Henry decided that he would not take the throne of Jerusalem, and he wouldn't be attending Jerusalem soon either. In 1172, as part of his penance for killing Thomas Becket, he had said he would take the cross, but he had not yet, and he wasn't doing in the foreseeable. The contemporary writer Gerald of Wales paints King Henry here as craven and cowardly, and in his mind he has Heraclius saying that Henry was, quote, worse than any Saracen, unquote. But I think we can leave that down to Gerald of Wales' versions of events being, well, as kindly as I can say, as accurate as a Mel Gibson movie, and move on from there. Still, Gerald of Wales does include a flourish I rather enjoy, even if I don't believe it was actually uttered. He says that Henry gave his reason for not going on crusade as, quote, I may not leave my land, for my own sons will surely rise against me in my absence, unquote. To which Heraclius supposedly said, quote, No wonder, for from the devil they come, and to the devil they shall go. Unquote. Now that's a gorgeous line, 
and it's why the era of Henry II is known as the Devil's Crown. And even if Gerald is about as honest and as trustworthy as a used car salesman with a bevy of fraud convictions, we can use that line and decide, well, use it for the title of this episode. And so, as you know, the BBC did a whole series called The Devil's Crown about Henry II and his son back in the 1970s. It's one of those shows you can still find clips of it here and there. The kind they don't make anymore, you know, basically plays with the camera filming it. And anyway, that quote about The Devil's Crown segues nicely into allowing us to discuss what was going on with Henry II and his sons, as this is important, as it changes the nature of England and London going forward dramatically. Alright, so as we discussed last chapter, Henry II spent most of the 1170s after the Great Revolt trying to focus on stabilising the nature of his government, creating a bureaucracy that would allow many of the previous powers of the king be completed by the expanded office of the Chancellery, which was increasingly being based out of Westminster, and as a caveat of this was therefore increasing the importance of the town downriver of London and its suburb Southwark. A lot of this was being done because at a base and fundamental level, King Henry was facing issues with regards to his relationships with his sons, the royal heirs of his vast and powerful empire. And to remind folks again, at this time, Henry II ruled over the entire western side of France, as well as England, most of Wales and parts of Ireland. And his relationship with his sons could best be described as problematic. In fact, it was downright toxic. Also, to remind listeners, in case you weren't here before, from a geopolitical point of view, while England was a crucial part of Henry's vast domain, it was not the centre of his domain. It was an equal part centre, along with Normandy, which was the traditional political heartland of the English state since William the Conqueror, and Aquitaine, which was his wife Queen Eleanor's central political heartland. So Henry II was trying to solve conflicts between him and his sons. And this really was the dominant geopolitical struggle going on in the vast Angevin Empire by this stage. In 1179, Henry recognised his son Richard, who was his mother's favourite, formally as the Duke of Aquitaine. And then two years later, he finally arranged for Richard's older brother Geoffrey's marriage to Constance of Brittany, And therefore, Geoffrey finally became the Duke of Brittany. And the region, after many years of almost constant rebellion and resistance, had finally mostly accepted the Angevins being in charge of them. The youngest son, John, spent most of his youth travelling alongside Henry II, and he clearly became his father's favourite. And Henry began to grant young John more and more lands, often at the expense of existing nobles' estates, And back in 1177, he'd made John the Lord of Ireland, even though he was too young to hold said a post. And this left the king's oldest son and heir, the young Henry, or the young king, as he was already crowned heir to the throne, somewhat well out of it. Prince Henry, the heir to the kingdom, actually ended up after the Great Revolt, spending most of his time travelling around Europe and partaking in tournaments and enjoying a kind of rock star lifestyle. He wasn't even involved in government or military campaigns as was being done by his father or his baby brother Richard. And by 1182, he was sick of it, it seems. He wanted title, like the Duke of Normandy, and to be able to run his own court, maybe. Henry II still would not grant this to him. He only 
just increased the size of Henry Jr.'s allowance, and as such, a fight was brewing. So Henry II offered to have his eldest son's youngest brothers, Richard and Geoffrey, formally swear allegiance to him as king-to-be, showing they intended to be ruled over by their older brother. And, as in all cases of sibling rivalry, Richard was not going to do that and told his brother to go suck up. Well, whatever he said, Richard basically refused. He said he shouldn't have to swear allegiance to his older brother because basically Mommy had promised him Aquitaine. But Henry II insisted. And so Richard did the whole sulky teenager routine of agreeing to swear allegiance to his older brother Henry. Older brother Henry was doing the whole over-the-top older sibling routine and was all like, right, you little shit, towards Richard and refused to accept his homage. And rather than just agree that Richard should hold Aquitaine and swear to him, oh no, older Henry found a bunch of guys who lived in Aquitaine and didn't like Richard being in charge and joined forces with them and then went, hey, Geoffrey, our baby bro Richard has been kind of a knob. And Geoffrey went, that little shit, and sided with his brother Henry and raised an army of mercenaries in Brittany to invade Aquitaine. And that was the force Prince Henry was leading against Richard and his dad because King Henry was all, oh, for God's sake, Richard owns Aquitaine and joined against his son. And anyway, Henry was leading that force of mercenaries when he caught dysentery and he died. And as such, King Henry had to change the succession plans drastically. Now at this point, he had a problem. His next eldest son, Geoffrey, was Duke of Brittany, but had only just gained that title by marriage, and he had to hold it. After all, it had been bloody years it had taken for the Angevins to secure that. And so Henry bypassed him in his early 20s for his younger brother, Richard. In a game of ducal musical chairs, Geoffrey would remain Duke of Brittany, Richard would become heir to the throne of England, and would give up the Duchy of Aquitaine, and John would become Duke of Aquitaine. All sorted, said Henry, right? No. Richard didn't fancy giving up the title of the ruler of the mighty Aquitaine to become under King of England, so he refused point blank. Henry II ordered Geoffrey and John to march south and attack Aquitaine, but nothing was resolved, and the father and brothers all decamped to Westminster in 1184, for a tense reconciliation, and by 1185, so just as all these visitors are turning up, which I mentioned earlier, King Henry had managed apparently to get Queen Eleanor to demand and force Richard to obey his father, while at the same time, and saying if he didn't, Henry would give Normandy and possibly England to Geoffrey. So, sulkily, Richard gave the principal castles of Aquitaine to his father, Meanwhile, Henry sent John over to Ireland, and he made a pig's ear of it, causing no small amount of chaos, and Henry was about to give him more men and send him back to try again, when Geoffrey went and, well, he died. And we don't know exactly what happened to Prince Geoffrey. We know he did die suddenly, aged only 27 in Paris. But how he died, we'll never be too sure. See, there is one French version of events that said he was in Paris, and he suddenly came down with sudden chest pains and just dropped dead. But another version, also from France, said that the prince had been taking part in a tournament and had fallen off his horse during a grand melee and was trampled to death. These are very different versions of his death and both excuses could well be rubbish. You see, the question that needs to be asked is why was Geoffrey, the Duke of Brittany, in Paris in the first place? He had no reason to be unless he was visiting 
his bestie, the King of France, Philippe Augustus. Ah, yes. Philip Augustus, King of France, son of King Louis of France, Henry II's long-time enemy. And Philip Augustus was a new young king with a simple agenda. He wanted to break up the Angevin Empire. He was the King of France and most of the country was owned by a vassal of his who was also a king in his own right. It was complicated, it was messy, it was unacceptable to this new young king. And as such, King Philip Augustus made it his principal focus to try and end the Grand Empire of Henry II, breaking it apart so he could insist upon his sovereign rights to be king of all of France. Therefore, at this point, Philip Augustus, King of France, is trying to undermine King Henry II. And he could not always match him militarily, no, but Philip used all methods to seek to undermine Henry's rule, including cultivating friendship with the men who could do more damage to Henry II than anyone else, his sons. By all accounts, King Philip Augustus was very close to Prince Geoffrey, the Duke of Brittany, and he would have been happiest if Geoffrey was been on to be made King of England. And that leads us back to the murky circumstances over his death. Why was Geoffrey in Paris when he died? Now, the suggestion from the sources that he had chest pains and died suddenly was written to suggest God was punishing him for conspiring against his father. Meanwhile, the story that he was killed in a tourney may have been put forward by Philip Augustus to cover the fact that he was in Paris to conspire against his father. But whatever the case, the second eldest son of Henry II was now dead, and Richard was now legitimately next in line to the throne. Henry II suspected Philip had been causing the descent between him and his sons because after Prince Geoffrey's death, well, the relationship between the king and Philip Augustus ended. By 1186, the French were invading Normandy and Henry II was gathering a huge army to confront this young upstart king. The Pope intervened and got both sides to agree to a truce and then all hell broke loose because back in Altrimer, Saladin's forces finally took Jerusalem. And the reaction to this was King Philip Augustus and Henry II and Prince Richard all said they would take the cross and lead armies to liberate Jerusalem. However, at the heart of all this was Henry II being as stubborn as it always been. And he simply did not like his son Richard anymore. I mean, genuinely disliked him. He wouldn't even recognize him as heir, even though everybody else did. There's a lot more to it, but bottom line, in the end, Henry II, the most powerful of all the kings of England, died aged 56, infected by a bleeding ulcer, the most powerful and dynamic overlord England had ever seen, mightier even than Canute, and his passing in 1189 saw the end of an era and the new king Richard take the throne and an event so significant for London that it deserves its own chapter. And that's what will come next. Okay, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you could follow along. Um, slightly shorter chapter than normal, but that's okay. It's Christmas. I hope you're well. I hope you had a very good season, however your season went. And we'll be back same time, same back channel next week. Thanks for listening. Bye.